what we're going to do to start with is invite any one of you in the audience to, to present a case that you've experienced, that you've maybe thought about over the last hour and a half while we've been talking about dementia and palliative care, something that went well, something that didn't go well, but a case you'd really like to share with everybody else. Um, I want to offer that to the audience first. If nobody has one, don't worry, we're prepared. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, often when I go to a program like this, there are people who pop into my head that I would like to talk about. So are any people popping into anybody's head? Must be the hour of the day. Yes. Well, why don't you ask a question and then I'm, I'm going to... I work at um, New London Hospital and I work in a, a nursing home that's adjacent to it. It's called the yep. Center. Yep. And I, I work on one unit where I know all the people really well. Yep. Like I have 18 of them. And I have like three of them that keep popping in my mind. But it isn't like I could run a scenario and tell you what I already did and we get the problem solved. It's more like, where do I go from here? This is the issue. Okay. Throw that off Absolutely. Okay. So throw it. <laughs> All right then. Well, let's see. I have one man who was probably that middle stage going into the deeper stage of um, dementia where he has very poor impulse control. He has a vascular dementia. And he'll act out, uh, especially like in a major dining room, he can feed himself, and he'll just lose it. He's just in a rage. He wants certain foods, but yet he, he can't really say what they are. It's almost like he wants gourmet-level food, but it's an institution. You're not going to get fresh vegetables. You're going to get frozen. You know, and if you don't like hot food, well, sorry. Usually we eat everything up. So it's like everything doesn't work for this individual. And now it's getting to the point he's getting violent. And he's throwing dishes. And he's striking at the staff. And he won't take his meds. And it almost seems like a Depakote might work, like something for mood control, kind of take him down the peg and help him be more relaxed. But you know what? He won't take any of it. He's very smart. And then we even made it liquid for him, put it in juice. But he knows the juice doesn't taste like that. So how do you process? I also want to respect his rights. I want to personalize his care. He is pretty eloquent in some of the things he can tell me that he wants. So like, and also he had a DPOA, but he fired her because she stole all of his money. But did she really? So he doesn't have any resources right now. It's more that the administrator is doing everything he can to sort of keep the man in a good place not really wanting to file for guardianship, but might have to because all of his family's gone. He was the youngest in a very wealthy family, and all of his money's been spent. It's gone. So I'm trying to learn a way I can kind of identify his needs, but I'm almost thinking some of that anger might even be pain. You know, there's something else going on. But yet he's too paranoid to take meds. So how do we change our environment to so, get a better quality of care? I know he's going to get more need more have more palliative needs perhaps he can't walk now he can hardly stand i give him instruction he can't move his right leg to his left and make a circle like to get into the bathroom 
So he's really failed a lot, and I, I got legal issues, and his DPOA's sort of falling apart. So like, how do you, but he almost reminds me of the lady that's yelling help, help. He'll yell help, help a lot too, but you can't really put your finger on, he's uh, unconsolable. You can't really rationalize with him. He doesn't seem to have any rational processes where you can, well, that he, but yet he wants to talk indefinitely about things that he thinks we could do. He, he mostly wants perfect gourmet food, <laughs> and he wants this lifestyle he used to have years ago. So he, he comes to mind, and then I have another man who... Well, let's, let's take one at a time. Because <laughs> there's enough fodder there for a few cannon loads. Um, so there, this man has moderate to maybe moving into severe dementia. He's got a lot of behavioral stuff going on. Right. He is still pretty verbally articulate, it sounds like. Yes. Um, but he's functionally and cognitively failing. Yes. So in the realm of like palliative care, what do you guys think? So I'll put my nursing cap on and start. Um, I think first and foremost, we'll, we'd all agree that the, the, the primary responsibility is certainly to make sure that he's safe um, and that he's getting the care that we think he would want to get and that the other residents are safe. Obviously, he, him throwing dishes is, is really part of it, is, is, un, is unacceptable. Um, and I assume the first thing that you would do is your plan of care would really focus on redirection and all those things that we know what to do. And a lot of that is really very personalized, which it sounds like you're aware of, the types of things that he wants to eat. And I almost think that, you know, again, from a team approach, as we said, you know, geriatrics is a team sport, to think about are there things, is there anything that any staff member has found that will help the situation to either redirect him, calm him down, uh, you know, can you crush the meds in pate? <laughs> you know, he's a, <laughs> he wants gourmet food, so I mean, I think, you know, so, so and, the, you know, the, the, the tricky part about all of this is, which all of you know, is that this takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, and in this day and age, of course, we're so limited in, in facilities in terms of the amount of time that we have and the amount of one-on-one -on -one kind of staff time. Um, I would also strongly suggest, and we have our wonderful Jeannie here on the panel, is to really explore are there any spiritual uh, supports in terms of what you know, his practices are or were or even not. And, and I'm going to just ask Jeannie to comment a little bit about that, that even patients who don't have a, uh, you know, uh, specific affiliation with an organized religion, and at some point would that, you know, help? But I'll ask Jeannie to, to talk about that. Um, two cases come to mind where um, spiritual care made a big difference. See, chaplains do get to sit for a long time and listen to people. And uh, even, um, the, both of these cases were dementia patients. Um, in one of these cases, um, the person was very agitated. I don't really have anything to bring to you that sounds exactly like your case. 
but the agitation of the, uh, he called 911. <laughs> I mean, call the police. What's happening to me is not supposed to be happening. And um, of course, it was it, it unraveled in uh, description of violations that, of course, had not occurred. He was in a hospital. He wasn't in a factory. You know, but. One of the things I've learned to do in listening to a person very carefully is listen to the imagery. Something had happened that made him feel personally violated. And um, to fast forward, it turned out that a nurse earlier in the day had taken out his IV and said, you're free. And he glomped on to, I'm free, let me out the door. And so police, yeah, I'm being held against my will. You know, all this bizarre imagery actually was pointing to personal violation. But the other thing I became aware of was his extreme vulnerability. And sometimes in people's behaviors with dementia, um, I've seen the aggressiveness is really something that when you come down and you can join them where they're vulnerable, it melts. And that happened with him. That happened with him. Um, as we talked about the situation, I agreed with him. The, this, this shouldn't have happened. Tell me more, tell me more. And then he told me it wouldn't have happened if my wife was here. Oh, why isn't your wife here? She died. Oh, let me talk to you about her. Tell me. Tell me more about her. And the man started crying. And so that aggressive man turned into um, a very grieving old man where a lot had gone wrong in a very short period of time, including the fact that he couldn't puzzle it out himself anymore. And so by sitting with him, and letting him cry and reach the point of the real wound, I think we were able to accomplish at that level something that a medical intervention couldn't touch. So I'll stop there with that, with that example. Relief of the suffering. It's perfect. Sounds good. Um, there was a question that came up during the break. I believe somebody spoke to you, Ellen, about um, feeding of patients when they become unable to feed themselves anymore. Have some of you encountered this? I actually have a case I'd like to present and have us talk about that a little bit more. So let me tell you about um, this patient. She's an 84-year-old woman. She's been living in a dementia unit for about two years. Dementia unit probably very similar to the one Kathy has. Um, with moderate dementia that's always been presumed to be Alzheimer's type dementia. She is on really no medications. She's completely dependent on the nursing staff. And she's developed some pretty serious swallowing problems. She's having trouble swallowing. She sometimes chokes. She sometimes pockets food. Um, and she's lost 18 pounds in the last three months. 
Her daughter, who is her DPOA, is adamant that her mother not be made to eat, and a feeding tube is out of the question. So this is a patient you're taking care of. You're confronted with this situation. There is a question of whether you assist this person with eating. What are people thinking? Yes. did the same thing when she was an inpatient in Dartmouth. And when um, we just kept feeding her, you know, she didn't refuse it, she didn't pocket it. Um, but we just kept feeding her and finally she just started eating. She wouldn't chew. She wouldn't chew so she would put it in her mouth and then spit it out. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden she started eating and chewing and doing all of that right. She lost 22 pounds in probably a month's time, maybe six weeks, but not any more than that. And I don't know, I guess you just keep feeding them as long as they will put it in their mouth and swallow it so they get nourishment. But what if they're not swallowing it? Well, then you've kind of got to stop feeding them. Yeah. No feeding to <laughs> Okay. People have thoughts, feelings about that yet in the back and then down here? I don't have the question. Here, here comes the microphone. Oh, da 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 da. da. <laughs> I don't have the question. Is she the person refusing to eat um, anything and have a variety of things that try? Like with my mother-in-law, she well, she liked chocolate ice cream. Period. Mm -hmm. And. Um, you know, she was at the stage where that was okay with us, but there was no way that she was gonna eat, um, you know, out of the basic food groups. Um, so, uh, so I'm just wondering that that would be one thing, you know, have other things to try, and once somebody is making a decision not to eat, um, and the family says no feeding to, I don't think there's a choice, actually and say what is the safest consistency for her, and the dietitian get involved in terms of what can we offer this woman that she might like to eat, and can we feed her on a consistent basis, offer foods on a consistent basis, versus just saying, oh well. All of those things had been done. Yeah. Yeah. It was decided that her swallowing problem was more related to dementia than a swallowing disturbance, and actually she was on uh, nectar liquids and pureed foods, which to me don't seem very appealing at all. Um, yeah, so she, those interventions had been done. Wait. Did she have teeth? Yes, she did. Yes. Um, I'm a dietitian. I work in uh, home care. And um, there was a patient recently that we had. It was actually, I knew him quite well. Um, and uh, when I met with his wife, um, she made the statement that I'm not going to feed him. If he doesn't want to eat, he can't eat on his own. Mm -hmm. That's, that was his, um, he had expressed a lot of wishes about not wanting life to be prolonged. 
Right. So, and then the discussion about dementia being, you know, clearly a terminal illness. Right. But I think this is something that people should, should look at is more about feeding because it just keeps, you know, you see the generic no artificial nutrition and hydration, which I've seen ignored so many times because I worked in a hospital for 18 years. But just when a person can no longer feed themselves, maybe some people make the choice that that's time. Since it's, if they have dementia, it's a terminal illness. If well, I don't feed, you know, if I don't, if I'm not able to pick up something with my, you know, with my hands, then don't feed. So I mean, how that relates to this is that um, certainly, if this person didn't want to go on, you don't keep pushing it at them, uh, giving foods that they like, um, that they've liked in the past, and it sounds like they did that. Sometimes dietitians think if you pile more food in front of the person, really, something. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. And what about if the, I mean, very often people lose the ability to feed themselves, then they really also progress to lose the ability to really chew and swallow effectively. But I mean, you were talking about your mother and, you know, giving her ice cream because she liked it. What does the goal of care become when some, comfort, have people heard of comfort feeding? Yeah. What are the issues of brownies? No, it's not that kind of comfort feeding. <laughs> one, of, one of the challenges, I think, is when patients um, report that they're hungry. Yeah. And then, and, then what do you do? and then what do you do when they're recurrently aspirating and they're, and, and they're hungry? Yeah, and they're wanting to eat, but they really can't eat. Which I thought was where you were going with that case, actually. And well, oh, we're going down many paths with this case. <laughs> the, the other thing I just think is worth pointing out is that, you know, um, the way mammals die is typically by stopping eating and drinking. It is a, a final common pathway for all sorts of illnesses, be it cancer, be it heart failure, be it dementia. Mm -hmm. we, we know it a little bit ourselves when we have the flu and we don't want to eat. When you are sick, that is part of the natural process. And so um, we who, who have a desire to eat, I think can sometimes project onto those who are less well that they are suffering by not eating. And that isn't always the case. And so really moving towards food as a source of comfort as opposed to food as a source of life prolongation I think is the key, is, 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 is this improving somebody's life? And putting it in front of them and allowing them to take what they want is often a nice way. Sometimes there's limits to that. Sometimes they have physical mobility issues, cognitive issues. Um, but it's a, it's a way for a lot of people that we can sort of distinguish between those who really do take pleasure in eating and those who don't. Yes. Maybe when she finally passed away, um, 
we would offer her food. She would tell us when she had enough. Her family would come in and force feed her more. She doesn't mean it when she tells you no, they would tell us. Yeah. And it, it was just very, very difficult. So what did you do? Um, I asked for an ethics consult. Um, she'd already had several. Uh -huh. um, and um, I work weekends, so it would have been like a Sunday, and I did not see them again until quite a while later. Um, she'd already been there for a while. I came on the weekend, and um, they don't do ethics consults on the weekend mm -hmm. um, unless it's you know life or death. But I just tried to encourage the family to stop. You know, she said she's had enough. Um, they actually came out and said, she's throwing up, what did you give her? They had just fed her beets. I said, what color was it? It was beets. I said, she's had enough beets, you know, let her rest. It's very hard. You know, I don't know this family, and certainly there are a lot of difficult families, but often people are, um, you know, they're, they're trying to do the moral and right thing, and they're living it in, under a very real perception that to, to withhold food from someone is a, is a sin, I mean, it, it, or is, is inherently wrong. And so, I can't say it works with everyone, but I have found that really trying to sit down and explain what is the natural process, what happens with disease, um, what is the experience of the individual, uh, sometimes trying to absolve them, it's, it's a little bit of healthcare provider as, as clergy, um, uh, or calling in the chaplain or clergy if there is one to really bring um, home the point that this is not a um, this is not wrong, that this is in fact a kindness, and, and sometimes that will change behavior, not always. We have uh, the similar kinds of things yeah. with, with staff members as well who uh, have a hard time not providing care, certain kinds of care. We're in the back. So thinking about the question from 20 minutes ago, and you asked originally what to do in the case of a person who can't eat, may need a medical intervention, EPOA as opposed to it. And so one of the questions, things I haven't heard at all today, is the interplay between the DPOA, the patient, the medical system, and adult protection. Because a lot of times I see these reports coming to us when the medical folks and the family do not agree. Can you speak a little bit about where this plays into any of us? This lady, her, her durable power of attorney um, is supporting what her mother's uh, wishes were. Um, and actually, we were supportive of the daughter because we felt she was legitimately expressing the wishes of her mother, that she would not want to be kept alive at all costs, would not, uh, she had a living will that said no feeding tube, you know, very specifically. So we felt that the daughter was um, representing her mother's wishes in a way that was logical. This woman also had cared for her husband who had advanced dementia, and when it came time for the same question to come up with him, had said no feeding tube. So we knew her long enough. We knew she'd made that decision for her husband. So we felt that this was not a situation in which the daughter was making um, a decision that was dangerous or, or unsafe for her mother that was not what her mother would have wanted. 
because truly this daughter understood it was her obligation to represent her mother's wishes. So we didn't get into that. There are other cases where we have certainly felt that a durable power of attorney is not representing um, patients' wishes. Um, and I think maybe once we got to the point of calling adult protective services, but not around a feeding issue. It was really around somebody who just didn't understand, didn't seem to appreciate uh, his wife was doing very unsafe things and he was doing nothing to protect her from very unsafe circumstances. But around the feeding issue, this daughter was clearly representing her mom. But that's a great question. Other thoughts? Yo, yes. I just wanted to add to this story that she had told. This family had lost the husband the week before mm. in the same hospital on the same floor. So there was that whole dynamic. So I'm mm. sure the kids didn't want to lose their mom, so we're going to force feed her. But, so there was that yeah. really made it even more difficult. That certainly puts a whole different spin on the, on the urgency of that family. In the back, there's two people in the back. It'll be a race to see who gets the <laughs> uh, Hello, we had run into a case several years ago where the person wasn't eating. And what we had come to realize it was that they weren't interested as opposed to they were refusing. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing is going the other sensory route with uh, odors and smells of different foods. And we were lucky enough to have a cook who took it on as a personal challenge <laughs> and really came up with as many different unique spices and smells uh, and even recorded the sound of meat grilling uh, just to see, and, and it was for a man, I'll, I'll admit yeah. that, uh, just to see if there might be anything that might crack what we didn't understand. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually, it was a medium rare steak. So. <laughs> Where are you? Yeah. Where, what? I, I work for Adult Protective Services, but this oh. is at the uh, the veterans' home. Nice. Yeah. So, so just to, to put our, our research hats on, there's been some evidence actually when we look at some of the studies about you know kind of olfactory memory. Um, but I too had a, a, an experience where I was consulting on a, on a veterans nursing home in New York that was a brand new facility that they built a, a dementia unit with kind of a luncheonette counter and the, the nurses aides would come in twice a week to cook breakfast and these were you know moderate to severely demented patients and as soon as the bacon would go on and the coffee would go on they would just automatically come and sit at the stools. <laughs> yeah. Oh, back here? Yep. My, my uh, thoughts are, we've talked a lot about dementia with um, family, that, demented people that have family and caregivers. What about those that don't? What if the, about those that have no one? No children, no family, no friends. They're, they're alone. Now what? And who's going to make a decision for that? Well, this is where... those people actually in the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, what we see is when people have nobody, there's the whole issue of finding a guardian for a person who has no one. And I know we were having lunch with some people who 
um, you know, are, do Public that. Garden. So I, would any of you like to talk about how that happens and what you end up doing for patients? Um, right here in the middle. can answer that question, but first I just want to say that when I, um, I used to run an adult day program, that's how I first know Catherine, actually, and we had a gentleman who had pretty advanced um, Alzheimer's, and he loved big band music, and we couldn't figure out how to get him to eat, and finally, and we generally, I don't think we turned on the music during lunch, but one time we just happened to put on the big band music kind of quietly. And he just started whistling away and humming and just started eating. It was great. So these other senses, I think, kicking into smell and um, auditory. And it, yeah, just he ate great meals then once we figured it out. <laughs> so um, we're, Gabrielle and I are uh, public guardians for the state of Vermont. I don't know what, every state is different, but um, people, um, we work for the state of Vermont and our salary position, and then we're appointed by a court to uh, be somebody's guardian. So somebody would have to be, somebody would petition the court, whether probate or family court, for a public guardian. And it would be um, last resort. We are absolutely, we've got um, plenty of cases, and it really needs to be someone who really has nobody who needs a guardian for whatever reason. Usually it's a medical reason or something major reason and then, but in terms of um, someone not eating, we, we're not gonna force someone. We would be going through all these, basically we have our own state ethics committee that we would approach with something, something like this. It's a wonderful uh, ethics committee. We also work with hospital ethics and so we would be dealing with all the same questions and we don't have the perfect answer either, so. And just to speak, I don't know, to the ethical literature, so there's a, a different threshold um, of competency that you need to achieve to consent to a procedure as opposed to refuse something. So in order to consent for surgery, an intervention, a test, a hospitalization, someone needs to have the ability to understand what that means. They need to have the ability to understand what not pursuing that would mean there's a fairly high level. Um, if someone refuses a procedure, uh, there's a very low threshold. If, if someone's screaming, I don't want to go to the operating room, I don't want to go to the operating room, they can be absolutely demented. And, and it's very, very, very rare that you would force someone against their will to have something done to them. So the same thing would apply with feeding, um, that you really would have to have I mean, I can't even imagine the situation where you would forcibly feed um, a demented individual who was refusing to eat. It's, yes, over here. I just had a question back. It's right behind you there. Sorry. <laughs> um, you, the first case, you said that the client had uh, let go of his durable power of attorney, and I believe that that patient um, had dementia. So at what point, I I didn't realize that people that um, had not good competency could just do that and not have a. I don't either. I was going to ask that question. How did how did they how did that get carried out? How did the person re fire their DPOA? Yeah. I 
think I'm really privy to the rest of that story, and it just is unfolding now. But he had said goodbye to his DPOA, and the, the nursing home administrator was helping him, and he sees the ombudsman like once a month, mm. and they work on his rights and what his needs are. So I'm not really sure. There must be somebody taking the place of that DPOA, but I don't know who it is. Well, you were saying that the DPOA had taken financial advantage of this person. Well, I don't know if it was proven. It's he his also had some oh, friends. his perception. Okay. His perception. He had some friends that were policing him. Yeah. They, were, they were having too much fun with his money, and like you had said before, they're very uh, vulnerable because they don't know how to say no. And I think that's probably what happened. Um, so I'm not really sure. He's sort of in this funny spot. He's very miserable, and he, he's not sure what really happened to him. He's been victimized, and he is working out with the abutsman and with the administration. So, Gen generally, again, with competency, I mean, there's levels. So, yeah. so you can be quite demented and have the competency to, to decide between chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream, for instance. But so you, you look at the, the complexity of the decision, and the level of, of cognitive ability. The decision to fire your DPOA is a fairly significant mm -hmm. decision. And my understanding is that anybody with moderate dementia or more pronounced, and this guy sounds yeah. moderate to, to more onto the severe end, I would really question his ability to, so, to, to do that. So there may be some like, extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's in an interim point, right? More thoughts about feeding issues, end of life issues. Yes. I, I work with Betty Dose too, and oftentimes I've seen people that are, um, they have a significant level of dementia or they may have another type of illness where they know it's terminal and they just decide to stop eating. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they stop eating and they stop drinking and then they go on to, um, we go on to putting them on comfort measures and then they die. Mm -hmm. And they, they basically, at some level, have made that decision that they're done with life and they just wanna, you know, be done. Mm -hmm. And they know that if they don't eat and they don't drink, that that's what's gonna happen. Yeah. So, Goes along with what Dr. Stadler was saying about how people die is often by not eating and drinking. But it does seem that it happens an awful lot to be talking about it right now. And I think that what it gets complicated when someone opposes it, you know, when a family member or someone is, but it really happens all the time. Right. Uh, you know, it's sort of a natural progression. Yeah. We often have people who won't even really have an, a, what we would perceive to be a terminal illness, but are are at, at very advanced age and they begin to feel like they're mentally on a precipice and they'll say before I go over the edge and they'll decide when they're like 94 or 95. I just had a case yesterday of a patient with severe dementia um, who has had um, 
about a 20 pound weight loss over the past couple of weeks. She has no uh, acute symptoms. It doesn't seem that there's anything organic. She's slowing down in her eating and I was asked to write an order for Ensure. The, the nurse asked me to write an order for Ensure. Is it in my building? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. And so there was a discussion about that about you know, providing Ensure to this patient and should we just, the patient has very clear wishes that she doesn't want to be artificially fed um, and should they be really encouraging her, as we all know we can, to be drinking this Ensure or should we just allow her to eat what she wants and drink what she wants and um, so I don't know if anybody has any comment about that. I think when I raised the issue that maybe we, you know, there was a lot of pushback that I got. Like, what do you mean? Of course we're going to be rich. If they, if they offered it. Hold on. She's running as fast as she can. <laughs> yeah. It's good they, to know that. If they offered it and she was interested, you know, then maybe they feel better. And, you know, there's probably some kind of medium ground, you know, because I think it's, I'm, I'm a, also an orderer, not a, carry out the orders, but I suspect it's harder to be the carrying out the orders. Like the nurses who work with the patients all the time. No, I totally agree with you. I, I agree with you. On the other hand, you know, are we are we violating the patient's wishes by giving her this, you know, superfood? Uh -huh. You know? Yes. Kind of yeah. And, and and I do not think that, that the ensure that this woman is going to take is going to, to prolong her life or make that much of a difference. It just came up as a, as a conversation about, you know, should we be doing this? I often talk about with folks that there comes a point when you start talking not so much about whether someone is going to die, but how they're going to die. And that by, by giving them the ensure, right, we're saying, okay, so that peaceful death by gradually not eating and slowly drifting away, that's off the table. So now we've got pneumonia or heart failure, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Up here? Bernie's coming. <laughs> we got to get your roller skates. <laughs> um, I had a... Uh, physician friend, I, I never actually worked as a dietitian in a nursing home, but a um, physician friend of mine, she was really, uh, she really hated the Ensure or the whole idea. I mean, she said, nobody ever drinks it. So her, she came to me one day, she said, you know, my latest good idea is Reese's peanut butter cups. I looked at the label, she was really right. I mean, she said, I looked at the label and it has just as much nutrition as the, uh, as the Ensure. I said, you could mix it in with vanilla ice cream. Ben and Jerry's so, In other words, I mean, and the other thing is just to try a little death by chocolate conversation with the family. Like, what did they always like to eat? No. Maybe we could try that, and maybe they won't eat it at all. Yeah. But it's like, it's just something that can be shared. And just, you know, oh, she had a bite of this. Uh, yeah. I got this special soup from the deli, and you know, things like that, which is much better than Ensure, and then gradually decides not to eat anything, and then the person. So yeah. it's a psychosocial model rather than just nutrition. Right. Well, and again, I think it's really um, involving family yeah. 
in what's the goal at this point? Where is this person in the trajectory of their illness? And is it appropriate to be trying to find ways to get them to eat? Or is it better to just let nature take its course, as many people say? Um, you know, in regulated nursing home environments, weight loss is looked on as a very negative thing. And I know I'm asked constantly as people with end-stage dementia lose weight to document why we're not addressing that um, or why we are, if we are. Um, but the, the, the other part of this is I've seen people who um, can no longer walk, can no longer feed themselves, can no longer talk, really are very much at the very end of dementia, but they'll open their mouth if somebody feeds them. And I've watched one woman gain 30 pounds in three months. Now, I don't know if anybody else has a problem with that, but um, clearly the woman is still getting some comfort out of eating, but really. Um, so I think this is a huge issue, uh, either you know, people are unable to eat and losing weight and we're having to defend why we're letting that happen. Or people who really don't have the ability to not eat if it's put to their lips are being fed amounts of food that maybe are not reasonable and healthy. So um, there's some real issues as we think about what is the goal of the care in this case if a person is having difficulty with eating and feeding themselves. So. Other thoughts, observations? Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, go back to Ellen's question because I think as nurses, and in particular in geriatrics, uh, it's a knee-jerk reaction. The family will say, mom's lost 15 pounds, what are we gonna do about it? And we don't think about what the goal is. We just, mm -hmm. we just call Ellen up and say, we need some insurance. Uh, well, it wasn't, I, think I think we do need to stop and, and think about what yeah. we're doing and why we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, where do we expect this person might be in six months to a year? Um, and, and, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I would just like to go back to the issue of being the, the direct care provider because yeah. I think there is absolutely 100% a, a distinct difference. Um, and so I think it is very difficult when you're the, on the front line and, and you're the one there actually providing that direct care. It's, it's very easy to, to you know, sit in an ivory tower and think about you know, ethical uh, you know, considerations and going back to what somebody's wishes are and kind of you know, us sitting back in the office and having a conversation about it versus being that, that person mm -hmm. there. So yep. you know, I just really wanted to make, make your point. I guess from my perspective and as what sort of everything that we're putting together is that it's a conversation each time. It's not, well, this is what you do when somebody has end-stage dementia. This is what you do when the family doesn't want, you know. Um, I think I sort of made a flippant comment before about this happens all the time and I, I retract that before APS comes to visit us. <laughs> um, it's a conversation each time. It's a care plan each time. Uh, you know, it's it's reviewing with the physician, the family, 
the resident, and all of the stuff. Have we? Are they depressed? Are they? You know, you sort of rule out all this other stuff. Is there indigestion? You know, and and you come to the answer. But it's I don't think there's any. It's not simple. One straight answer. One thing we haven't really talked about is uh, what other cultures do. Um, what the place of you know, food, comfort measures, how do they look in, I mean, we, I think Manchester, New Hampshire has a large African uh, refugee community. They must be bringing challenges and thoughts. You know, their people are aging. Um, my parents lived in central England uh, and were on palliative care, English style, which was somewhat stylized and ooh, not as nice as what we have here, actually. Um, but that's, that's they, they call that postcode dependent. Um, the person who was actually in charge of my father's palliative care, paid for by the government, uh, the NHS, she was um, a Sikh. And she had done this for her parents and then gone into the business of being an in-home caring agency. And so they were used to many generations in a house. They were used to parents, dotty parents, you know, uh, pulling up to the table, but not necessarily there in, <laughs> in spirit. Um, so they were very integrated. These people were not problems. And um, I think that our culture is, we're trying to put it back together, uh, especially with less funds, less money, uh, trying to think smart, but thinking culturally and appropriately. Uh, I just wonder if you, we're all a very white, probably Northern European, maybe some, West Eastern European family. Uh, it would be nice to know what. We're pretty homogenous. I cared for a, a woman who, she's a US citizen, fairly highly educated, and had made a very conscious decision that when, she, when her disease got to a certain point, she did not want to eat or drink. She was not to be fed. The family was fully in support. And there were private caregivers in the home. And we had gone through very clearly um, that she was not to eat or drink, and we expected that she would die within a five to ten days. And she didn't. She kept living and living. And it became clear that her caregiver, who was a Filipino woman and a very ardent Catholic, was feeding, giving her something to drink at night. And um, it, it was quite a challenge because the motivation was was very heartfelt and trying to do the right thing. Um, and uh, ultimately, we, the family had to ask her to stop caring. Well, first, there was a little detective work to figure out who, who was giving. Um, but it, it really does touch on our perception that to, to not feed someone is very culturally determined and, and not shared around the world. Yes, over here. Uh, this is just kind of going back to why, you know, what I remember when I worked at a nursing home, when a facility um, kind of pushed, encouraged, I should use the word, uh, people to eat. Because when the state comes in for surveys and they see there's a weight loss, uh -huh. 
the facility is in big trouble. So that, that is one of the things, you know, you have to have your weekly weights, and as soon as you start weight loss, it's like, oh wow, you know, you've got to do something about that. So that, you know. Go ahead, Jean. Oh, I, my point was on something else. Oh, okay. Ellen's over here. I actually was thinking that Jeannie was going to talk about when uh, care providers have very strong, yes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. and whether or not they are, uh, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions about their own organized religion and what is. So, so to stand on the, you know, Catholicism block or whatever other block. Uh, when in reality, that's really not even consistent with the practices. Or, yeah. But this doesn't address her question. Sorry, do we want to do that second? Sure. We'll come back to that because that's a very interesting question and it's an ethical one. Yeah. Um, and we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, just an example in dealing with dementia patients and pain. I had a case um, when I was an intern at a nursing home. Um, where this woman, when I came to visit her, was clearly into, she, she was clearly more than mildly demented. And um, yet we had marvelous conversations, but she would be wincing all the time and moving her body. And, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, wicked pain. And so I said, oh my gosh, can't we ask the nurse to get you medicines? No, 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 don't do that. So I reported it to the nurse, the head nurse, and she said, she's on PRN. She can ask for pain medicine anytime. So I went joyfully back to tell my patient that, that you can do that. And she said, oh no, I have to pay for my sins. So we talked more about that. She was an old time Catholic and I tried, first of all, to get, she wouldn't listen to me, so I tried to get a priest in there. Anything with a Roman collar is gonna tell her what's up and he knew the whole case and he said fine and he came in and it was very unsuccessful <laughs> and, um, and I had a supervisor at this time and I said well if I can just convince her that she doesn't have to pay for her sins I mean what could she have done at this point and my supervisor said and Jeannie when you take that away from her what will you put in its place oh, oh. so that was a good lesson for me. I don't march in there and try to tell her what to believe. So what did I do but go to the head nurse and say, she's paying for her sins, so she won't ever call you. And the head nurse said, pain control and comfort measure is what we are all about here. And so she put her on a regular dose. Well, lo and behold, the next week I come in and this patient is dancing around the room <laughs> and she's having a marvelous time. And I said, oh, Priscilla, this is marvelous. She said, I've paid for my sin. <laughs> so to get back to what you brought up, um, Yes, it, this is a very controversial issue because regulators do not look at weight loss as a good thing. But again, if the goal of the care for the individual is clear with the family and with the medical provider, it is possible to document and not 
address that in a way that would be addressed if, say, you had somebody who was in having rehab and lost 20 pounds. Um, so it's, it, it all, again, it's the focus on what are the goals for the person you're, you're looking at at that moment. And sometimes there's expected weight Yeah, actually, in end-stage dementia, we expect people are gonna lose weight. Document, document. You bet. <laughs> Other comments, thoughts, yes. So we've talked about the pain metric. What about um, uh, and the eating metric? What about the uh, bed sores in somebody with dementia? Bed sores in somebody? I mean, you get whanged by bed sores. Yeah. And if you can't get them to eat and you can't get them to move, what are you going to do? Um. <laughs> The, the reason I'm standing here scratching my head is the facility where I work, we have lots of people with end-stage dementia who don't eat. We have zero bed sores. So what do you do? Um, we, our nursing assistants are fabulous. They give people incredible skin care. They move people when they need to be moved. Um, they walk them even sometimes, or they stand them. Just very, very intense nursing care. So, um, so it, it doesn't have to be if they're not eating properly, they end up with bed sores. You know, it's not. It doesn't have to be that way. Back here. Um, I work in. I work in a Jerry Psych facility, and um, what we find when we have very difficult situations with residents is that we call the ombudsman's office ourselves and we explain to them what's going on with the behavior is you know what the results of the behavior are and we ask them you know where do you feel that we should go we're doing these things we are consulting with a dietitian you know we we're care planning you know for uh, pressure relief mattresses um, as long as we're showing them that we're doing something, we're active all the time, we just don't do one thing and then just leave it. We're always trying something to alleviate the condition, then they're pretty good with that. But they'll also sometimes, because they see everyone around the state, they might be able to give us an idea of something that we can try that we hadn't thought of within our own team. That's an interesting approach I have not heard before. Oh, I yeah. them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I call our ombudsman. I was on the phone with her this morning. Yeah. yeah. Better to have it gone that way. Yeah, <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Other comments, thoughts? Oh, Jeannie. Well, this one has to do, it's one more story about listening to the imagery. Um, I was with a woman who truly, truly, nothing made sense when she talked. And so one of the saddest things I see is when the family comes in and keeps trying to call that person back to rationality. Because what the, what the dementia patient feels is the, uh, the judgment, I'm not performing, I'm not doing. And so the contact is not made to make you feel safe and included. 
And this patient explained that to me, and I want you to hear how she did it. I'm sitting there and we're off the wall with the conversation, but it's making good sounds together and that's really what was very effective. It was just being together. And so um, I would just agree and then finally she said to me, you see that glass? And I said, yeah. She said, it's empty. And I said, yeah. And she said, that's my soul. And I went, oh, it is? Yes. What would fill it up? And she grabbed a hold of me and she said, being together. Being together. And that's what made me realize that she had just told me how to take care of her. And I had something at that nursing home called Spirit Hour. <laughs> Everybody came. <laughs> and it was, it was all about celebrating the patients. And we would focus on an individual each time. But we started by going around the table and each person saying their name. Because there are many people that hold back and they're the ones on the walls just sitting there and staring into space. But that moment of acknowledgement of each person and um, most of them would say their names, but some of them couldn't, so we'd all say their name for them. And um, the, the staff said, why, they can't participate in the conversation. Why do you want them to come? And I said, so we can be together. And we played music and we featured one person and her family, I mean, different ones were featured. The family would bring in pictures, and one particular patient was very, deformed and very knotted up and uh, everyone shied away from this person because oh, I'm afraid I might end up like that. And she was one of the first ones we featured. And her daughter brought pictures of her and, and told about how she was a pediatric uh, emergency room care nurse and uh, she won all kinds of dancing contests and showed pictures of her when she danced. And everyone was enthralled with these stories and the pictures went around. They don't have to understand to get that we're celebrating somebody. And um, finally, a few of the people who really were able to converse said, I'm so proud to know your daughter to the woman. And then we played jazz music and we had cookies. And um, some of them said, uh, I said to them, now do you know how to talk to her now? because they would never even go by her. And so this woman was even worse isolated than she was by all of her afflictions. I said, this is how you do it. And I grabbed hold of the lady and I said, Ray, hi, how are you? And her hand came up and she waved it. I said, she's happy to be here. And so I saw people in the hall going, Ray, hi. <laughs> so there's all kinds of ways to reach the soul even when the mind's gone. That's my point. And I might add, a fabulous way to end this day. <laughs> Thank you all very much. You've all been very engaged.